Get your Google vehicle ads up and running fast with FlexDealer.com. The car business is rapidly changing and modern car dealers are meeting the demand. I'm Michael Cirillo, and together we're going to explore what it takes to create a thriving dealership and life in the retail automotive industry. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with subject matter experts that are designed to help you grow. This is the Dealer Playbook. My guest today is a crisis PR expert with 25 years of experience in the field. He helps organizations repair their brand's reputation in press and online, something that I'm sure we can all relate to, especially as we're moving into a deeper and deeper digital world. He can handle any crisis PR situation and train others to do the same. Well, that's lucky for us. Dave Oates, thanks so much for joining us on the Dealer Playbook Podcast. This is great. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to meet you. First of all, how how do you get into crisis PR? Like I, we hear about PR, how do you get into crisis PR? Being the being the right place at the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time. I'm not <laughs> sure which one you want to go to. So my my background my background is so bass backwards. I'll try to I'll, I'll try to uh, synopsize it a little bit. So I started as a Navy officer uh, driving ships. And about halfway through a nine-year career, I became a public affairs officer, first as a part-time and then as a full-time Navy public affairs officer. And, and when you're military, forward deployed operations, I had the privilege of doing so in Haiti. I was on an aircraft carrier for two years. I had you know, different operations in between. Crisis is just part of the deal when you're forward deployed. And we used to call it the tip of the spear. Stuff's gonna happen. And, and just on the aircraft carrier alone that I was on in the late 90s, for a couple of years, we had a aircraft, an F-14 Tomcat crash in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. We had had uh, a couple of uh, sailors lose limbs because of an accident on board. I had a grand theft auto case in Dubai. I had rape cases in uh, Australia. And I had wow. a whole bunch of other hot war environments and things like that. So you, you pick it up pretty quickly as a young. At the time I joined the carrier, I was 29 years old and essentially you think about it as a corporate communication head of about a 7,500 person organization, because it was not just the carrier, it was eight other ships that went with us on deployment. So you learn how to swim pretty quickly in the deep, <laughs> in the deep waters. Uh, and I went into the private sector about 20 odd years ago. I worked for a couple of agencies focused in startups and tech. So because of my background, I was the guy that was always doing the mass layoffs, product recalls, shareholder disputes, CEOs behaving badly. You name it, I've seen a flare of it, and I, I don't. I, I guess that's boasting, but I, I don't get nervous too much about any crisis matter for any industry of any size. But how I got to start doing it on my own is I've been a. I've had my own shop for about sixteen years, but I focused exclusively on crisis PR for the last four, thanks to these little devices that we all carry mm -hmm. around. That are essentially whether you're trained at it or not, are our own broadcast vehicles, right? We've all got a mic, a camera. And thanks to our social media accounts, a distribution system right. and organizations, big and small, can have their reputation be called into question and literally have everything upended on an Instagram post. So I'm privileged to do what I do for a wide range of entities. I've never served in the military, but what I will say is now that I think this through, I've had my own PR crisis. And that uh, is that ever since I saw Top Gun for the first time, A, the F-14 Tomcat was one of my favorite 
fighter jets. I thought I was going to be a naval aviator until I was like 20. Right. Um, I, I had to learn to ride motorcycles. I had to marry a blonde, beautiful woman. <laughs> and at some point, we were going to ride to the marina and make out on the back of my motorcycle. <laughs> uh, did not get the pilot's license. Married the beautiful blonde. Got the motorcycle. She won't get on this thing with me. Well, three out of five. That's not a bad, three that's not a bad track record. Three out of five that's is right. a good run, right? There's still time. There's still yeah. time. Um, I, so I, I love that you have history uh, in the in the military. Obviously, thank you for your service. We appreciate that. Um, but I, I think, you know, I was talking to just recently, actually. I was in Kentucky last week speaking to a naval aviator. And, and we were talking much about the fact that because of his experience, to your point where crisis kind of isn't a crisis to you anymore like you yeah. almost see it like the matrix he really <laughs> felt like his service in the military provided him with a different perspective about life in general um do you feel that is that do you feel the same way as that is that kind of what leads into this or was it just your sheer exposure to so many different types of crises both right i i, I think it's it, it was a combination of two things one is you experience a lot in the military and i was a, i was a young you know, I was a young kid. I graduated. I hadn't yet turned 22 when I put on my ensign bars and I was in for, like I said, about a nine, little, little over nine years. And you, you, two things that they teach you in the military is one, how to, how to go beyond your expectations. Like everybody has their own limits, right? The mind is a, is a real strong organ because it can talk you out of anything. You don't think you're right. good enough. You don't think you're smart enough. You don't think you're capable. And the military basically puts you into positions where you think there is no way I'm succeeding at this. Like I'm, I'm, I have been set up for failure and you have to rely on your own initiative in order to get things done. And, and early on, you're under the tutelage of some real seasoned enlisted personnel and some officers who expect you to fail. And this was the lesson that I had to learn for myself early on is it is perfectly okay to fail provided that you're in an environment that is supposed to train you for that. Because from failure, we all learn our lessons in life and you realize you can do more. And mm. I think that is something that I have taken with me since that has served me extraordinarily well in good times, but in also in real tough business times since then when I've been in the private sector. But the second thing is you do see a whole lot of different things. I, I, I talk about, you know, the fact that I was on an aircraft carrier and I was essentially the corporate communications head as a 29 year old for a 75 plus person organization that was scattered among nine assets that traveled halfway around the world and back. And I talked to PR people who've been in the corporate side for all of their career mm -hmm. and they didn't see that type of opportunity until well later. And I was, they said, how did that happen? I said, I, I, I picked up the phone and the <laughs> detailer in the Washington DC who starts up by saying, hey buddy, which you knew you were getting screwed. Threw you in a position that was just, it, it sounded awful. It sounded like there was a no win situation and you figure it out. So for all of those things, I'm, I'm extraordinarily grateful for my time in the service. And uh, I, I try not to be that old guy at the, you know, the old veterans home that's spouting <laughs> about in my day, but but I, I, I guess I do look back fondly on it because I, I still rely on those lessons. Now here I am 22, 23 years in corporate, 15 years on my own, 30 years gaining, a, you know, having a paycheck. Right. Uh, those experience, those first nine years were pivotal. 
It, it makes total sense to me. I mean, like I said, I n- I've never served in the military, but in my early 20s, I went to the Philippines. Um, I did missionary work there, humanitarian oh. type work. Um, had to completely immerse myself in that culture. And and that experience, I feel like, A, taught me how to think much more critically than I had ever thought um, probably ever before in my life as a young kid, ripped yeah, yeah. out of the comfort of you know North America, yeah. thrown into yeah, yeah. a third world country, seeing and witnessing things you've never experienced. And I feel like that gave me perspective about how to navigate life at a whole new level. And and I got to be honest, and this is probably the biggest douchebaggery thing to say. I'm like, <laughs> did, did nobody else learn how to think? How, how no. come so few people no. know how to use their brains? No, hell no. So nobody teaches you that, right? Everybody teaches, everybody teaches. And, and this isn't a denigration on the edu- education system. And, right. I, and I understand the reasons to do that. So apologies to anybody who's going to take umbrage with what I'm about ready to say. But we're also worried as a society about failing that we teach to facts, but we don't necessarily teach at an early enough age to the context of facts, right? So here's what I tell people. I, I, I have the privilege of doing some volunteer work with college and high school students through a large rotary club that I'm involved with here in Southern California. And I'm involved in Rotary International on some other elements. I tell kids, you're supposed to try new things, right? You're supposed to take a chance and get out of your comfort zone. And for me, I, I, I lucked out. I, and I say I lucked out because I got to the military. There was no way on earth I should have been in there, save for a retired lieutenant commander by the name of John Wesley Gaynor III at Gaithersburg High School, who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself and put me in a position that I was able to secure an ROTC scholarship and then muddle my way through college. But I tell him, look, it doesn't have to be the military, right? It could be foreign service. It could be missionary work. It could be something you do in your backyard. The point is, is that if you think for yourself in a certain situation, like, oh, I, there's no way I'm going to succeed at that. That's the time you jump in for that. And maybe you don't. And you know what? What's the worst thing that happens? The worst thing that happens is you fail and you learn a lesson and you move on. Everybody's so worried about the box score at the end of the day, but what they don't watch in the box score, so baseball's my first love, I'm gonna go here on analogy, is they look at the win-loss. Who had the most runs, who didn't, and that's that's the only thing that matters. BS, 100%. The thing that matters is how many at-bats you took and how many times you swung at a pitch. Because Mm -hmm. guess what, the best player in baseball person's making a gazillion dollars a year who has a batting edge of 350 fails two out of every three times they attempt to do their primary job which is to get the bat on the ball and put it in play nope that's not what happens right they fail at it two or three times and then they have the audacity at least three innings later to get up and try the same damn thing again and that's the secret to life we don't teach that enough and it took me until my 20s to figure that out and I, it, the, if I can help kids figure that out at an earlier age, you just got to try. Everything will work out. You'll get your hits. You'll get your runs. You're going to have a lot of scrapes, cuts, and losses at the in the between, and that's perfectly okay. I love that. And and it makes me think of something my good friend David Spizak said. He's very well known in the automotive industry uh, and and throughout. You know, just a, a vast experience that he's had in his career. And on a recent podcast episode of his. Um, he said, you either succeed at achieving the whole goal or you don't make it fully there, but you still progressed. You still, so, so another, it just, I love the paradigm shift on failure. Like it's, you, you learned something, you still gained so much. Maybe you didn't fully get there, but you got, you got somewhere. 
Yeah, we get we got to teach we got to teach kids that failure failure is perfectly fine. In fact, it happens all the time, provided that you have stepped up to the plate and you've tried. Right, that the attempts are what matters. The shots on goal, if you want to use a hockey analogy, whatever it is that works for you. The thing that will the thing that I still look back to. I was just at a networking event before this, and we were talking about what our regrets are. And the regrets that I had is the times in which I talked myself out of doing something, right? Because those failures of the time that you you didn't even step up and try the, well, what if, if only I did that. Those are the regrets mm-hmm. that I still carry with myself in high school and college, and in some cases, my first year and a half in the military, until I woke up one day and said, you know, I'm failing because I'm not even trying. Well, damn it, if I'm going to fail, I might as well give it a shot and we'll figure it out from there. And at that point, once I had, once I trained my mind to overcome the fear of failure, stuff started happening, right? And and I, I want to be clear, because I sort of mentioned this in the beginning, it's not been all better roses for the last 31 years. And even in my own private practice there, there were some really rough, lean, <laughs> sucky years, I think is the technical right. term. But right. I knew I could get myself out of it. I knew that there would be a solution. I just had to keep trying. And that got me through. And I'm and I'm grateful for it. I love that. And and this is actually a perfect segue into something else I wanted to talk to you about because I love that we started here and we talk about the perspective required in order to see crisis not as a crisis almost to, to alleviate panic mode. However, now we introduce the business side of it and right. the money side of it. And all of a sudden, our perception is that the stakes go way up and boy, we cannot afford to screw up. So so when it comes to crisis, and then we'll, we'll talk about online a little bit in a minute, but yeah. when, it, when it comes to crisis, how do you alleviate then the fear of failure when money is on the line? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't say that I alleviate the fear completely, right? Because I don't know if any of us alleviate the fear, but I can help people manage it. And it usually is to show them the path that they're on and the impact that it will have versus another communication path that still may incur incur some level of pain, right? I, and But because you have to you have to be open. You have to be transparent. You have to express, in some cases, empathy, right. even, if, even if it's not culpability because it's not your fault. You still have to express empathy in action. That that takes a lot of business owners like auto dealerships, particularly ones that own chains of auto dealers. You know, it takes them out of their comfort zone because they've largely been successful. This is an overgeneralization, but both. Right. You know, walk me. You know, stay with me on this one. They are largely successful because they have two specific characteristics, whether they're in auto you know, dealerships or in some other industry. They've ignored the naysayers, people who have told them, you can't do it. You're not good enough. It's a highly competitive market. What are you thinking? And they have tuned that out and they've kept their eyes on the prize. And the second thing is, if somebody's throwing an obstacle in the way, whether it's permitting for a facility, right, or a, you know, an ability to carve out a market or something like that. They have barreled through it. They have fought their way through it. They've either knocked that barrier down, they've gone over it, around it, or whatever. But those two characteristics, the fight or flight mode, as I call them, do not serve well when somebody's taking a pot shot at you on Instagram and calling you (laughs) worthless because they'll either tune it out, which means that narrative then goes festers and goes all over, you know, the social media, 
or they respond in argumentative terms, which only validates the other person saying, hmm, they're ticked off enough. Me thinks dots protest too much. So mm. I take them out of that. So I tell them, look, it, it, going this route may still provide you some pain, but it'll be far less and you get back to normal operations. And that's what I tell folks. I said, my goal here is to not try to spin something that isn't going to be truthful. My goal is to try to put this in context, have a communication strategy that endears yourself at least on some level, or there's an acceptance for the audiences, whether that's employees, customers, partners, investors, whomever, and say, look, let's give these people a chance to fix whatever it is, even if the fix is simply miscommunication, and get them a chance to get back to normal operations, preserve the revenue stream to the best possible, ensure profitability or a way back to profitability, and get them to be able to fix whatever it is that they're fixing. And in doing so, they might find that they endear themselves even more to audiences, but it is out of their comfort zone to do so. This makes me think of, so earlier, you held up your phone, right? And you uh -huh. said, Here, here's the broadcast device. Yep. I say this all the time on the show. My listeners are probably sick of me saying it, but what's the statistic? Got to say the same. You got to hear the same thing a zillion times before oh, it yeah. sinks in. Yeah. This yeah. sucker right here has transfigured, tra teleported us to an alternate reality where stupidity is the norm. And, 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 and yeah. you know, like, I'm sure you've thought of how do I create the drunk text app that like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, puts a filter. <laughs> yeah, a filter. Because what I see here, I, I see it all the time. I, people go online, they're fighting, they're arguing, they're this. And I sit here and I go, do you realize that you're arguing with some dude that's got Cheeto dust fingerprints <laughs> on his shirt? That, like, this is just what he does. In his mom's basement or whatever. In his mom's right. basement. Yeah. You, yeah. You, do you yeah. realize you're arguing with a 12-year-old Japanese girl yeah. right now? Yeah. yeah. No. And, and so it's funny, right? There could be an app for that one, right? An artificial intelligence, natural language processing app <laughs> that sort of says, like, hey, you use keywords and, and the yeah. app just yeah, I'm going to hold on to this for a couple of hours. And when you yeah. sober up, you can look at, you know, do you really want to say that? That would be kind of cool. The problem is it would really uh, disrupt the business model of Facebook and Instagram and TikTok because they love it when there's animosity, anger, and panic right. because guess what? That draws eyeballs. It's the, it's the same thing why we slow down because there's a car accident, right? It's, we, 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 are, we are drawn or we, or we, why we watch the Kardashians or whatever the frick, you know, it's just, it's just nuts what we, what we, you know, sort of stop and watch. The deal though is right. When we, when you have an organization and an executive team that operates on that fight or flight mode, right? Their natural in the inclination is to fight back or say nothing. And the problem as you said with that is you're sort of barking up a tree that is hell bent in many cases right. on creating that drama, maybe just for their own self, you know, self promotion and, you know, has nothing really to do with you. You just happen to be the subject matter of choice for that day. And I tell folks, you really have to think about why you're responding to them. And, and this goes specifically to car dealerships. So let me give you a good example. Car dealers all the time have a real tough go at keeping the online reviews happy, right? Because people don't write reviews unless they're not happy for whatever right. reason, right? right? They had a bad day. Their dog just died. Uh, the service, whatever reason that they got at your dealership <laughs> happened to be on a bad day. Okay, right. everybody makes some mistakes and they're going to chomp about it. And if you respond in a way that's angry 
it only elevates the conversation. So you have to answer them in a way that diffuses the situation. And even if it's a total bogus review, you are saying it in such a way that not necessarily to change the mindset of the reviewer, that reviewer is gone, right? That reviewer is 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 cemented in their viewpoints and right. that's how it is. But you're telegraphing everybody else that either A, hey, you did make a mistake, right? We're all human and you're fixing it. So right. there's a little bit of, of understanding that you care about that. Or there are ways in which you can do it without anger and animosity just to sort of telegraph to everybody else who's on your Yelp page or Google reviews or whatever, that this may not be a real customer. This might be a competitor. This might be bogus. And you can do it in a way that lets everybody else know you really shouldn't take this review at face value, but it requires discipline. It requires monitoring. It requires a steady strain to do that. You just can't ignore it. And then months later, go back to it. You kind of lost your credibility at that point. This is so critical, too. I was just at an event in Kentucky where I heard from Greg Gifford, who's one of the foremost SEO experts in the world. I mean, he, he just travels all over the world. He works in automotive and out of automotive and, and, and does some really cool stuff. And he was talking about how online reviews, in particular Google reviews, are one of Google's many ranking signals that they look at. And so, that of course, they want to encourage people leaving reviews. But to your point, the number of unreplied um, reviews, yeah. negative reviews. And I love that yeah. you brought up the fact that, you know, in, in many cases, there may not be any credibility to any of these things. Like you're, you were throwing out examples and I almost blurted out, yeah, they're, they're mad that Ikea changed the ketchup brand at, for the 50 cent hot dog. But you were, <laughs> you were, and I mean, car dealers don't have the best reputation, sadly, to begin with, especially when you look at Gallup polls, um, yeah. Yeah. like it's just there's this negative stigma that there are many who are proactively seeking to do away with. But but you also said something that made me think of language. And I want to get your, your thought on this. When I get an email from somebody, whether they want conflict or not, when they use words like since, like since you didn't submit this to us on time, we weren't there. For, and I'm like. I'm going to reach through the screen right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going yeah, to yeah. strangle you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, that, I paid you to do a job, and now you're throwing a since you didn't at me. <laughs> right? And we see that all, all a lot. So what's your take on language? Does this, can, can language, word, in, in particular specific words, either skew our emotional response? Not, not going to lie. Your, uh, your character uh, traits right there were freaking me out a little bit. You did such a nice job in sort of having that moment where I thought, he's really going to lose it. He's seriously going to he's seriously gonna flip out on me. That's really good. This will be the first on that one. Well done, sir. You should go into acting. Um, no, I, I agree with you, right? So it goes back to what I said is, is I don't care what the crisis is. I don't care what the industry. I don't care what the situation is about. Right. You have to express in every response as an organization or as an individual, empathy, and action. You have to acknowledge that somebody is feeling the way they are, even if the reason for their feeling is not founded in fact. Mm. You have to say, man, I'm really sorry you feel that way. I'm really sorry that that you're feeling that the experience wasn't a good one for you. We'd love to talk to you about how we can make that right and helpfully clarify some of the things that occurred from that. And let's see if we can come to a resolution, whether that's an offline conversation or an online conversation. The first thing people want to hear is that they've been hurt. The reason why 
animosity and anger occur <laughs> is because somebody is fearful that they have been disenfranchised and fear mm. and fear will always if left unchecked turn to anger not a, you know sociologists probably tell me that there's a whole lot of other scientific fact on there fine i can tell you 30 years of experience i've seen it every time fear left unchecked converts to anger and anger will then manifest itself because it's so damn easy via social media and text and online reviews because everybody has the ability to vent and they feel that's their only recourse so if you don't respond in an empathetic and then follow up with action-oriented way, how you're going to actually clarify something or fix something if you've done something wrong, then it's just empty words. So both of those have to be present for that. And your response from a language standpoint in an online review or a social media post or in an email you know, that comes in through the website of the dealership or wherever needs to include those two items. And those are not skill sets that are natural particularly for successful people for the reasons I stated earlier. So they have to be trained. You have to have, you have to be able to understand when you see that and you know, when you see that type of animosity, how you'll respond to it. Uh, yeah. It makes perfect sense. And it cracks me up that you thought I was going somewhere. I was just like, no, but, but, but you're right. Like that, that's the power of words. One word I think needs to be removed from everyone's vocabulary as it pertains to serving others is the word, unfortunately. <laughs> the word unfortunately makes me want to i will buy a plane ticket to wherever you live to burn your house down if you give me an unfortunately so so i will uh not it not in a car dealership actually i i i don't I, I, I'm the kind of guy and probably sorry, sorry, car dealerships. I'm the person who buys and, and buys their vehicle new and then runs it, you know, drives it till the wheels come off. Um, right. But I am, I, but I'm a regular service guy. So uh, hopefully that'll, hopefully that'll offset it. But um, I will, so I've never, I know I've always had good experiences with dealers when I've used them, but I'll, I'll give you one in the airline industry. And I still remember it. And I refuse to, to fly this airline to this day, 16 years later, I won't, I won't uh, give the uh, name on that one there, but it starts with um, A90, and we'll just leave it at that. And and I remember when I was going through a TSA checkpoint at an airport, coming back from business in in the East Coast, and I still have to go through the ticket counter. I was I was going to the ticket counter, and the ticket counter was taking right. way too long, and I'm like, I got 30 minutes, and that TSA line. This is before they had like TSA pre-check and all that TSA line is at least 40 minutes. What can you do right now to help me? Because I don't think I'm going to make the plane. And I swear to you, the ticket agent looked at me and gave me a shrug of the shoulder and a meh. meh. <laughs> it's like, are you seriously? I have a problem. I'm telling you about it proactively so we can maybe find a resolution, even if we're like, look, I'm sorry, here's what I can do. I can put you on standby. Let's see if you can make it in here. Something to show me that I, you care. And she could not have been any further away from caring, from showing empathy for my situation. I had a cross-country flight back to Southern California. It's a Wednesday night. I got to work first thing Thursday morning. It's afternoon. I'm like, I don't make this flight. I don't get it, <laughs> right? And I was like, can you just at least tell me? what was going on yeah sort of the unfortunately unfortunately you're basically telegraphing there's nothing i can do suck it up like oh really oh okay yeah. i'm the customer i'm paying money i think i at least should have some acknowledgement that i get where you're coming from let me see what i can do and if it if the answer is there's not a lot you can do then at least show me some empathy yeah you know what's what, what blows my mind about this 
scenario in particular is the the margin gap here. So, for example, flying is not cheap for the consumer. It, it's it's a lot of money. Yeah. The problem is contrast that against two airline revenues. They're not making any money. No. No. And so, lots of money for us. Expect you know VIP level service because we're we're paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars for these plane tickets, thousands in some cases. Contrast that against the people making no money. Like there's no motivator really for them to, to right. service us right, right, right. at all. So the, the the challenge here is, you know, there might be those listening saying, ah, it's a big airline. What do they care if they lose your business? No, yeah, they, no, they care because they need every last penny that they can get their hand on. Well, and even if they even if they didn't, right? The issue becomes I now, this is 15 years ago, right? So this is right. before social media, but I now, if that happens, guess what I'm doing as I'm standing waiting in the 40 minute TSA line? I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm on right. whatever. And I'm going, can't believe the sucky experience I just had at this ticket counter, at this airport, for this airline, you suck, blah, 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 right? And I am all over the place. I'm tagging the organizations, everybody else. All my friends are going, that's BS, blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know, they got a crisis on their hand. That's that's where I get called in a lot of that time. And you know, in, in retrospect too, we talked about, I, I felt disenfranchised by the employee. Well, there's a reason why that employee felt the way they did. And right. I would submit to you, they felt that way because they're probably disenfranchised. They didn't feel empowered mm. anything about it. And they maybe that employee at some point in their career had tried to make things good and had felt like they weren't communicated effectively by their employer to help with that. And they've sort of given up, right? If they were always that way, then there's a hiring problem and the HR department should should take note of that. But I think in some cases, most people have a, get a job because they want to do a good job for that one. They're interested in that one. They're, they're a people person. You don't get into that type of line of work without at least having some sort of right. ability to converse. And this person probably felt just disenfranchised in their job. I, I hate their job is the only thing I can come up with. Well, then my question is, what did that organization do to communicate and empower that, that person, particularly in previous sort of crises matters, mini crises like that? And this is what I tell organizations, and it's in, it's absolutely imperative for dealerships, right? Your first and most important audience in any communications is your staff, because your staff is your front line of conversations to people who are wanting to give you money. If they do not feel like they are empowered, that they are cared for, that they are informed, that they are kept in the know, they will translate that to the person that walked into the facility, either to buy a new car or to, to do a test drive or in your service and your body shop maintenance, right? They were the ones who will then determine how they will treat others. If they don't feel empowered, anything that you say in the public will be undercut by their attitude when somebody walks into the showroom. That's just the way it is. Yeah. It, and, and this is a topic that's on the minds of many dealers should be, Every organization, especially right. as we get deeper and deeper into this digital right. ecosystem and metaverse and, uh, you know, consumer sentiments are changing a little bit or shifting how they research and buy. And, right. and, and we're realizing that people always mattered. They're going to continue to always matter. How they choose to get to the point of transaction is going to look a lot different than we're, what we're used to. But there's going to be so many human touch points. And I love that you bring culture, work, environment. I would submit too, and I'd love your thoughts on this, um, you know, as we wind down. This is something that, to your point, I don't think 
employees, staff members are going to um, voice. Like this is something that you have to proactively as a leader, you have to proactively lean into this and assume likely that there's something they're not satisfied about in their current position and the work they do uh, or, or, you know, just anything as it relates to performance. I, I would agree. I, but I'd also think that's not specific to employee. I think most people don't care for one-on-one in-person confrontation. It's uncomfortable mm. for many people. Right. And unfortunately, that's where these little devices have sort of become that outlet that I talked <laughs> about. They don't feel like I can tell somebody, look, and I'm not really happy with how this is working out and here's why. And what happens is that they will go voice it in some sort of social media or online review platform. Employees are no different. That's why everybody gets shocked. I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of organizations get shocked about their Glassdoor ratings. Like, who are these people? Like, why am I getting two stars on Glassdoor? Because they are concerned about actually having a conversation with their supervisor or anybody up the food chain for fear of losing their job, for fear of being, um, you know, basically, you know, marked for that one there. Or maybe, quite frankly, they just don't like the confrontation at all. These little devices that we all hold right now allow them to have an outlet to say things that we all say in the back of our mind that now can be in the forefront of that. And that's the world in which we live. So you're right to, to get to the point. Dealers and any other organizations need to proactively engage all audiences about how they're feeling for that. And I see that in um, in all sports reforms, but particularly, I think dealerships, you know, hopefully they use it well, is how was your recent experience? Give us an internal ranking of one to five, you know, and if, if they enjoyed that, say, hey, we'd love you to write a review, but otherwise just thanks for the feedback. Because what will happen is you'll get tipped off on things that they may not have told you because they didn't want the confrontation. Mm, and you right. have an opportunity to make things right without ever having to have it blow up into the public domain. And employees are certainly somebody, an audience that you should do that with. I love it. Uh, how can those listening learn more about your uh, business and, and get in touch with you? I appreciate that. Uh, I've got a website, obviously, publicrelationssecurity.com, publicrelationssecurity.com. But if you Google Dave Oates Crisis PR, I'm up on LinkedIn and I've got a Twitter account and uh, uh, and Instagram. And, and but by all means, I hope people can reach out and just... Even if it's just, uh, you know, especially for dealers and, and other people in the industry, if they just want a quick question answered, you go to my website, you can schedule 15 minutes with me, free consultation. I love what I do. If I can be a sounding board for something, it takes us 15 minutes to do so. I'm only too happy to make that happen. Brilliant. I had a blast having you on. Thanks so much for joining me on the Dealer Playbook Podcast. Been a treat. Thanks for the time. I'm Michael Cirillo, and you've been listening to the Dealer Playbook Podcast. If you haven't yet, please click the subscribe button wherever you're listening right now. Leave a rating or review and share it with a colleague. Thanks for listening.